And the reason this one goes ting, ting, ting is to show that I've come through and whoever's listening must have come through or they wouldn't be here. And that's the, because I always consider my work one piece, whether it be with Beatles, David Bowie, Elton John, Yoko Ono, and I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that's a long, long time. So to me, it's one, it's part of one whole piece of work from the time I became public to now. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival to go back to the game after that news flash which in duty found we had to take Frank hey thank you everybody for walking with us and not leaving us alone to wander the planet the cool part is that every mile that I walk, I get to walk with my co-host, Lona Curry. Lona, how you doing? Man, I'm so good, and I'm so grateful we have a guest tonight. And I'm really looking forward to this, to this episode. I love it when we have a guest in the house, and I'm particularly fond of authors. And Miss Lori Kay has written an amazing book about what I think is a tremendous experience and i'm so glad that she's come here to share it with us confessions of a rock and roll name dropper miss Lori Kay was uh what the one of the last human beings were the last interview for the legendary musician john lennon and yoko ono it's amazing so thanks for being here thanks for having me i saw something i saw something i think i want to see again pre uh pre through post-production problem solver through post-production problem solver you know what i'm saying <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that that's a good description of, of my career the past uh 20 something years or even longer i saw it on linkedin it said uh say this 10 times fast pre through post-production problem solver pre through <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> okay so yes yeah, so the big thing that put uh Lori on the map was something again that happened on december 8th of 1980 
Uh, she was uh, co-conducted for RKO Radio, an interview on with John Lennon, and sadly turned out again to be the last ever with John Lennon as it occurred hours before he was shot and killed by, and we don't mention his name. Tell us a little bit about your book. Well, my book is called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, my life leading up to John Lennon's last interview. And basically, it's my memoir. It's the story of my early life and career um, wrapped around that day, December 8th, 1980, which tragically turned out to be John Lennon's last on the planet. So it goes everywhere from my growing up in my dysfunctional family, being uh, a teen runaway during high school, um, to uh, jumping off to college and the start of my career in radio following that and leading up to my work with RKO and and being a newscaster and um, doing a number of rock radio specials, including what turned out to be um, the longest United States Beatles special, which was RKO Presents the Beatles, and it was originally 14 hours, but within a couple of years, we had expanded it to 17 hours and changed the name to the first title I came up with, which is The Beatles from Liverpool, The Legend. So, And then it was syndicated, so ran on even more stations. And um, it was just, uh, it was an amazing experience. All of my interviews were amazing experiences. You know, I had, uh, so I pulled up the interview, that, that interview that you had done, and I was listening to it. You know, John Lennon in, you know, with my life, for instance, um, music at that time, I, I listened to a lot of music from that era. The, the Grateful Dead being my favorite band of all time. And <laughs> I have to laugh because in my book, there's a story about me and the Grateful Dead, that you will find very humorous. I've never been a Grateful Dead fan myself, but the story uh, relates to that. So you'll yeah. you'll you'll probably enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot, I had a lot of good times with with that, and so. But you know, and I was thinking about with with John Lennon, and there was a question that you kind of asked. I, I think it was you that asked in that interview, and I, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was something related to. You know, like writing crazy stuff, writing weird songs um, for this was actually what I was trying to say. But everything, every statement to come from the two of you has been taken as what what are they doing? Whether it's it's extremely radical or perceived as kooky or avant-garde, everything has this hard, tough, I want to get something across to you people. Well, he did talk about writing songs to basically share things with people, his his feelings and that sort of thing. And he, when I asked him about explaining that further, he brought up that, for example, when he talks to his friends, he shares with them about being on Bali and how beautiful it was, the island in Indonesia, and, uh, you know, basically giving them the idea that they should visit too, which immediately even made me connect with him more because just a couple of years previous to that, I had been living on Bali myself, where I'd gone to to study Balinese dance and uh, teaching English as a second language while I was there. So it was yet another reason for me to be able to say, wow, John Lennon's going to be a friend of mine because we've got so much in common. And uh, that was just another cool thing. Yeah. 
we we did a couple of shows our last shows on um the jim crow but and i just bring this up just because i know and i'd never even heard of this song in my entire life but women is the nigger of the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was a very famous song of theirs that got um a lot of a major reaction sure but mostly as john and yoko both pointed out from white people, not from black people, the black yeah. people that they'd given it to and the magazines yeah. covered it and they didn't have the problem with it because it, they knew that that he wasn't insulting them. He was yeah. explaining that, that you know, women had been prejudiced against. Yeah. And so that's basically where it was from. Yeah, I pulled up the lyrics to it and 100% agree. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting well, it's, song. it's almost kind of like the a bit of, the way things are today, it's it was all it's almost like clickbait. What clickbait is today at that time? Like you have to have a title like that. It's a genius thing to create this. You know this. Well, I have to hear this, and then it comes with a message. And and I wonder, you know, one of the things that I found so amazing because I listened to you read the first chapter of the book, and what I loved about it is the way that you really described your emotional journey towards this big moment in your life. Like I was so impressed with the way that you, you really took us as, you know, the reader or the listener on that journey with you, because what a huge moment in your life to be getting ready to sit down with, with John Lennon and having, you know, this big moment as an interviewer and a, and a young woman in, in this, this profession and this fear. I mean, it was just amazingly, it was just such a journey. It just took me on that journey with you. And it made me think over, you know, different times that I've had these interviews and confessions of a rock and roll name dropper. My life leading up to John Lennon's last interview is my upcoming memoir. It's my early life story wrapped around what tragically turned out to be John's last day on the planet, which I was unbelievably able to spend a good part of with him and Yoko. And this is my first introductory chapter, Imagine My Lead Up to Lennon. On December 8th, 1980, I was overflowing with excitement, anticipation, and disbelief as I approached the Dakota Apartments on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I was there to play my part in John Lennon's one and only U.S. radio interview following the release of his and Yoko Ono's brand new latest album, Double Fantasy. And the voices in my head were telling me that this was without a doubt about to become the best day of my life that I could ever even begin to imagine and that I was truly the luckiest person on the planet. Visions of thousands of screaming Beatles fans packed into Dodger Stadium so many years earlier swirled through my brain like milkshake in a blender, and I could barely keep myself from swaggering down the sidewalk as my associates and I approached the security booth right outside the Dakota's entrance. I'd flown out one day earlier from the West Coast as part of our three-member RKO radio team, along with an executive executive from Warner Brothers, Geffen Records, and although our RKO trio had already been working together on a number of attention-getting network radio rock specials and interviews over the past few years, including heading off to London just the year before to hang out with Paul McCartney and Wings, 
this would be an entirely different ball game altogether. After all, we were on the verge of meeting up with someone who'd literally disappeared from the music business for the previous five years, John Lennon. John had been hunkered down in the role of ultra-happy house husband and attentive father ever since his 18-month-long lost weekend, the time during which he was self-admittedly miserably separated from Yoko and living in Los Angeles, and he hadn't recorded or released any new music in at least the five years since. But now Double Fantasy, the new album created with his often critically reviled wife Yoko Ono, was his way of opening the door to the 80s and a whole new era. No one else in the world could even begin to imagine how it felt to realize that we were about to become the only American radio gang chosen to help John and Yoko usher that era in. The build-up to our interview had already been somewhat mind-blowing. At one point, while everyone was still in the, everything was still in the early planning stages, I remember getting a call from someone asking the date, year, and time of my birth because apparently Yoko was working with her personal astrologer who was going to take all the information collected and then use it to put together an astrological chart which would then determine the best possible day for our Dakota meetup to take place. <laughs> of course, the surprising thing is that even with all that intimate information and despite the fact that John and Yoko had already planned to head to Hawaii and the West Coast during that same time period, Somehow Monday, December 8th, 1980, a date that will forever live in freakish rock and roll infamy was chosen. Our flight to the Big Apple alone had been a total trip, with celebrities like British actor Anthony Hopkins and heavyweight champion Ken Norton also on board. Although I barely had the opportunity to say hello to Hopkins, who just starred in the amazing recently released film Elephant Man, I was incredibly excited to meet Ken Norton. Standing next to the massive boxer as he towered over me seemed to put my whole life in perspective. And when we shook hands, I remember thinking how it felt like my digits were being enveloped by a huge Hormel ham. <laughs> my main goal on that flight to New York was to come up with an amazing list of questions for John and Yoko. We'd been warned well in advance that asking about John's time with the Beatles was a definite no-no. So as I wrote out my thoughts regarding their recording process and inspiration behind the various songs on Double Fantasy, I also shuffled through the Playboy magazine interview with Lennon that had just hit the newsstands. And with each page, I became more and more convinced that I was about to be torn to shreds by my idol. It seemed to me that John had not only been adamant while talking to the writer about not wanting to bring up the Beatles, but his past in general, and I began to get the scary feeling that we were all about to be slammed by his superior intellect and wit. Knowing also that his personality was notoriously complex, the last thing I wanted was for him to think that I was some foolish, young, undereducated fangirl who still saw him as the smart beetle, while letting stupid questions with obvious answers pour from my mouth. 
Fortunately, I was able to get over at least some of my insecurities. So by the time the four of us from RKO and the record company were all sitting up together as though we were having a slumber party that night before the interview in one of our rooms at the Plaza Hotel, drinking hot chocolate and savoring the moment as we nailed down the last minute details, I saw myself as more than ready. Staying at the plaza was especially exciting and coincidental, considering that nearly 17 years before, that's where Beatles manager Brian Epstein had booked himself and the band for their very first U.S. hotel stay, arriving at New York's Kennedy Airport just a couple days prior to their debut appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. While we waited in John and Yoko's outer office the next day for our interview to get underway, their assistants filled us in on what the couple had been up to so far that morning, letting us know that they were just finishing up with photographer Annie Leibovitz from Rolling Stone magazine. Leibovitz had spent the last couple of hours upstairs with them snapping pictures, including what would become the most iconic shot ever of the famous couple, a naked John Lennon curled up on the carpet in a fetal position, wrapped around a fully clothed Yoko Ono, which basically defined the very nature of their relationship. <laughs> I'd actually had my own encounter, okay, more like a run-in, with Annie Leibovitz just a couple of years before in Seattle. As a news radio anchor reporter at King AM, the major top 40 station in town at the time, I'd been begged by a local publicist to attend the famous photographer's University of Washington show opening and then do a quick interview with her about it that would air as part of my newscast the next day. Even though I had to be at work before 5 o'clock the next morning, I sat in the audience that night throughout Annie's lengthy entire lecture and then approached her afterwards. But instead of being appreciative and accommodating, Leibovitz loudly accused me of lying through my teeth, asking why in the world anyone would book a radio interview with a photographer. I was mortified, and I got away from her as fast as I could. Despite my initial reaction so many months later, when I learned that Annie Leibovitz was working right upstairs with John and Yoko, I was certainly not about to let the possibility of running into her at the Dakota dampen my spirits in the least. No worries, though. Fortunately, I was never forced to encounter that photographer again. Our team was ushered into an incredible room which turned out to be Yoko's and, to a lesser extent, John's private office so we could set up for the interview while we continued to wait. The first thing I noticed was the fluffy white wall-to-wall -wall shag carpeting, which also made me wish I was barefoot. And of course, we were all asked to take our shoes off before entering and stepping on it. The next thing that caught my eye was this spectacular, super long, glass-topped coffee table framed in metal, with serpents winding their way up and around each one of the legs. As I looked at these man-made snakes, through the glass off and on during the entire interview, I remember having this surreal feeling of, am I really here with John and Yoko? No doubt about it, I was living a dream and more than just a tiny bit scared that I'd suddenly wake up to find out I was imagining the whole thing. RKO engineer producer Ron Hummel was busy taking out his tape deck and other equipment just as Yoko joined us.
introducing herself and seemingly very happy to see me, a female, as part of our otherwise all-male team. I felt a connection right off the bat, not just because we were both women, but because I'd always been intrigued by her avant-garde approach to art and music, even if I didn't actually understand the meaning of her conceptual art and music, especially her early experimental music. But I was inspired by the way she'd never back down, even while becoming a controversial figure blamed by 99% of the rock, pop music loving public for breaking up the Beatles. In other words, I was in awe. And so our pre-interview kicked off with Yoko telling us that John was finishing up with Annie Leibovitz and would be down shortly. While waiting for Ron to mic her up, I whipped out the silly little mechanical wind-up toy I picked up in San Francisco's Chinatown, a fire-breathing dragon that I thought Sean, their five-year-old son, would have a lot of fun with. Yoko was sure that John himself would absolutely fall in love with it, and she was totally right on. When John spotted it later, he immediately grabbed it and wound it up, watching the dragon travel the entire length of the glass coffee table while the two of them laughed like crazy, both he and Yoko saying how much John would enjoy it, that is, if they ever actually gave it to him, rather than keeping it to play with themselves. Another item I'd brought along with me was my personal copy of Grapefruit, a 1970 edition of Yoko's 64 conceptual art and poetry book, featuring, as it said right under her glowing portrait on the cover, works and drawings by Yoko Ono, and, introduction by John Lennon. I'd picked up the book years before on the bargain table of Cody's, Berkeley's infamous Telegraph Avenue bookstore, never imagining that I'd be sitting with the author herself a mere four years later, waiting her for her former Beatle husband to join us. Once Ron had Yoko's microphone in place, the two of us gals chatted on tape about the relationship between men and women in society and the pressing need to open up a new dialogue between the sexes. Dave Sholin, the RKO executive who'd made sure I was included in the interview in the first place and was naturally just as thrilled as I was to be there, joined in, as did Warner Brothers record execs Burt Keane, who'd been instrumental in pulling the whole event together. And so there we were, the four of us plus Yoko, when suddenly there was a knock at the door. As it opened slightly, just a couple of inches, the first thing I saw was John's characteristic round glasses and his nose sticking through the crack. When he opened the door up all the way, I turned towards him and in my typical smart-ass fashion, looked right at him and asked under my breath, can't you see we're in the middle of an interview? He looked at me and laughed out loud. And when Yoko did too, I thought to myself, everything's okay, we're gonna have a good time here. John introduced himself to our group and that's then sat down right next to me on the small love seat to join in on the conversation. My brain began to explode. Me, sitting next to John Lennon, unfreaking believable how in the world this could ever happen was totally beyond my comprehension. And as I made my best effort to stay in the moment, I realized that this interview could very well be the milestone event that would not only define the rest of my career, but no doubt my entire life. 
I had no way of knowing at the time that this was to become John Lennon's final interview, mere hours before he was tragically shot and killed just outside this same building later that very evening. While countless books and bios have been published since on the life and times of John Lennon, none of those other authors spent that ill-fated day with John and Yoko, nor were any of them confronted later on and literally forced into a conversation like I was with the beyond creepy character who was about to become his assassin. This repulsively annoying reject stepped right in my path as I walked from the Dakota hours later, repeatedly asking me, did you talk to him? Did you get his autograph? Over and over and over. For years I've beat myself up about this, wondering why didn't I realize there was something seriously off about him? And even more importantly, why didn't I sense that he was at that very moment carrying the gun that he would use to murder John Lennon before the night was over? The guilt has been hanging heavily over my head for more than 40 years. To my mind, this is what makes me, Lori Kay, the right person to tell her singular story as the half-century anniversary of the tragic event that affected so many lives, including my very own, approaches. As a young rock radio reporter, writer, producer, sitting at the Dakota that day with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, it turns out I'd guessed right about the life-altering nature of our interview. But what I couldn't even begin to imagine was that this unparalleled episode would not only dramatically change the course of my life and career, but my psyche as well. To this day, whenever I mention interviewing John Lennon on the former Beatles' last day on the planet, the response is nearly always the same. Jaws drop, people gasp, and the inevitable question is asked, when are you going to write your book, Lori? The answer is now. Thank you. Do you think being a teen runaway kind of prepared you in some ways to be able to step into all these big moments? Because you've had a you've had an amazing life and career, and it's almost like you almost fell into what seems to be your life's purpose almost you know just it just seemed like it was almost divinely just laid out and and not in a religious way but in almost a spiritual way like a universal just here and do you think that 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 moment of being a teen runaway where you have to make that decision to step out in the fear because what's happening here is so much worse than maybe the fear of the unknown of what's What's fixing to happen? Do you think that prepared you in any way to take all of these big shots and these big chances in your life? Well, yes, definitely. And I should tell you that it wasn't just a moment that got me to run away. I've been planning it for years and years and years, thinking about it since I was in elementary school, possibly even before that. And just I couldn't wait to get away. And when I started realizing that I couldn't wait until the end of high school when everybody was able to to leave um it was it was emotionally hard very very difficult for me to to deal with and yet i knew that i had to so i made every effort that i could to make enough money to be able to support myself and and um you know that as i mentioned that's that's in the book as well that whole story um and it definitely helped me going forward 
because it made everything from that moment on possible for me to deal with. You know, if I could make it on my own at an early age, then I could make it in this production. I could make it moving to Bali. I could make it, you know, as an intern at a radio station and working that into a full-time job that would eventually make me a newscaster on the number one radio station, top 40 radio station in the country. I mean, that sort of thing definitely prepared me. Well, give you all that confidence yeah bravo as we share that in common that that you know preparing for the moment you know that you get to and just can't wait that long so you know I, i'm i'm grateful that you know not grateful that you went through what you did but i'm grateful that you that you were able to prepare yourself and step out and have this amazing you know career and life and 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 you just seem like a remarkable human being so thank you that's sweet there was something you brought up, um, you know, before we kind of kicked on about your guilt and how you feel guilty regarding, uh, you know, that that whole situation. Do you want to explain that? Well, sure. I, I would like to say first that although I understand that guilt isn't really something that should be on my shoulders, it still is. It, it's that's just the way it is. That's just the way I am. And what happened was, is prior to the interview, um, Yoko Ono, who's um, amazingly into astrological um, reports and all, all that sort of stuff, had her personal astrologist find out from me and Dave Sholin and Ron Hummel, uh, who are also from who are also from RKO, from the radio station KFRC and going on the interview, as well as the um, uh, record company uh, exec, Bert Keen from Warner Brothers Geffen Records, um, had she had them give us, uh, give them her our birthdays and birth times, that sort of thing. And um, those were used to determine when the interview date would be be, you know, what what would be the best date based on everybody's astrological information. And um, so, of course, afterwards, after that date turned out to be the worst day in rock and roll history to me, of course, I felt guilty being born when I was. And, you know, what if that had been different than, than maybe the date December 8th, 1980 wouldn't have been given? Maybe it would have been a week later, yeah, you know, I, I just don't know. And also because John and Yoko had planned to be away on December 8th, they were going to be um, going out west, first to Hawaii, and then up to the west, uh, over to the west coast, California. And so it was, it was just kind of heartbreaking to think that I had in any way taken part in changing things that that could have led to John Lennon's murder. And that was just part of the guilt that I felt. Of course, the um, other aspect of the guilt that I've been feeling for nearly 43 years now is the fact that having been in contact with the asshole who became the assassin uh, and not being able to say to myself, gee, you should report him to the security department here at the Dakota and say, this guy is bugging you or bugging people and you should get rid of him. And, you know, wh why didn't I do that? And why, and this is, this is a little bit more ridiculous. Why didn't I look and see that 
gee, maybe that's a gun he has in his pocket. What is that bulky thing? You know, and I just, I can't say that, that I would ever have really expected myself to see that or predicted that or anything, but still, you know, just feeling so horrible about the at- outcome of that day. Of course, I blame myself. Yeah, because you're right. It was such a, a devastating loss to, you know, to humanity because they were working on music that would that that was just a part of opening humanity and minds. And and I'm a I'm a huge John Lennon, you know, just just not even enough. I don't even know it was a fan, but it was, you know, John Lennon gave me something to focus on in my years of going through abuse and different things. And so, you know, I was young and that it was just a devastating time. I remember in my own life. So I can only imagine how you must have felt. then. Yeah. And that was actually another thing I had the feeling that I had in common with John is the whole family difficulty growing up, um, him not having met his father. And I hadn't, you know, he he wasn't raised by his father at all. And I hadn't met mine at all and never did in my entire life. And, um, you know, not being raised by your mother. It's just, those are the things that that just make me feel, wow, you know, we, we had so much in common. We were going to have a lot to talk about long after the interview when we continued our friendship. And I was absolutely certain, 100%, that John and Yoko and I um, were going to be friends because they had said uh, towards the end of our interview that they were going to be in San Francisco in the next couple of weeks and um, we should all get together for dinner. And so Dave Sholin and Ron Hummel and and Bert Keen and I were all super excited about that and and already thinking about it, you know. And unfortunately, of course, it never took place. And then there was that thing that they signed for you. I know at the very end of the the interview, there was a what was that thing that they signed? It was an album. Well, uh, they did sign an album for me, a copy of Double Fantasy. But the thing was, we'd had so many problems with the pens and the markers that that we had brought, and also the ones that were in John and Yoko's office, that the signature on my Double Fantasy album was not only faded looking right from the beginning, but now you can't even see it. It's, you know almost 43 years later, it's practically gone. But what really excited me too, was the fact that I had brought a couple of things with me to the interview to to talk to them about and show them. And one of them was Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's basically her amazing um, poetry and, and uh, just conceptual art you know, and, and ideas. And it was a book that I had always wanted to read. It came out in 1964. And the minute I first heard of Yoko Ono, I was fascinated by her book, but I was a student or I was out of town or out of the country. And so I I never got it. And then when I came back um, to the country from Bali, I was a student at UC Berkeley and I was walking up to campus one day, stopped at the local famous bookstore, Cody's. And oh my God, there was a table out in front with bargain books on it. And Grapefruit was one of them. It was a 1970 version 
of her 64 book. And I immediately bought it and um, hung on to it and took it several years later when the interview was about to take place and um, showed it to Yoko and John. And they were thrilled because they hadn't seen the book in years. They hadn't looked at it. And they both asked me, can I autograph it? You know, and, and I said, Yoko, yes, of course. And John said, well, can I autograph it too? And he had done the introduction and it says so on the cover as well, right under her beautiful um, uh, portrait. And, um, and I said, yes, please. So they both autographed it and it was, it was loving. It was wonderful. So you were equally as excited to meet Yoko Ono all, as John Lennon, would you say, going into that interview? or I was thrilled to meet her because he meant so much to her and she meant so much to him. And at that point, I was still young. You know, I was in my early 20s and I had had relationships, but nothing like what they had, which you know, she basically called it a spiritual bond. And um, that to me was just so thrilling. I wanted to learn about how do you know when you meet somebody, how do you know that they're the right person? How do you stay with them? And if, for God's sake, you break up like they do, or they did for 18 months, um, the lost weekend, how do you get back together and reclaim that relationship as though it were even better than than when it began, you know? So that was amazing. And that was something that, um, that I felt almost like I was able to do. Are you still in contact with Yoko Ono? Um, no, I, I did try and contact her after the tragedy. But as I understand, I'm sure that all I ever do for the rest of her life was a reminder of the worst day in her life. Mm-hmm. So I can understand that she wouldn't want to get in touch with me. And then her, uh, and how many, wait, how many sons did he had Two was it? Yes. He had his original son, uh, first son, Ju- Julian with his original, uh, wife, Cynthia. And then, um, years later he had Sean with Yoko. And of course the difference was, is that being a, a beetle in his early twenties, and, um, you know, being required to to produce and write music and and go on tour and everything for years, um, he wasn't able to spend any time, nor, as he said, did he really feel it necessary. So he didn't raise his son Julian at all. But it was exactly the opposite coming back from his last weekend in Los Angeles with Sean when Yoko was pregnant and she had the baby, John became the house husband and raised Sean um, to a greater extent than Yoko did because Yoko wasn't a child rearing person. And John found out that he was. I mean, I'm assuming he's in music and stuff. (laughs) Yes. Well, he and Julian both are musicians and picked up a lot from, uh, from John and, and Sean also had Yoko as a, as influential. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I wish that I was in touch with, uh, with either or both of them. That would be amazing. Um, who knows, maybe someday. And the funny thing was, I, I didn't mention before, but the other thing I brought with me to the interview, um, for 
John and Yoko and Sean was I had bought a toy um, in Chinatown in San Francisco um, that I thought Sean would love. And it was a basically a wind up dragon monster that, you know, sprouted fire. <laughs> and um, and uh, I thought, oh, Sean will love this. And, and uh, when I showed it to Yoko, she said, oh, John's going to love this. <laughs> and then when John saw it, and he immediately wound it up and had it walk along the top of their glass top coffee table and said, oh, my God. And he it was what the two of them said was, we may never give this to Sean. We may keep this ourselves. <laughs> this is so cool. So I would love to meet Sean if and only to ask him, did you ever see this toy? Yeah. <laughs> what, what ever happened? Because, you know, unfortunately that night, Sean yeah. was shot and killed. So mm. we don't know. Well, it seems to be just from meeting you this time that it's very apparent that you have this universal alignment that seems to follow you around and, and, and is a great guide in your life. I can almost foresee that, you know, it's possible, you know, for, for there to be another meeting and, and different things. I mean, I could definitely see it as a possibility in your life. It seems like you've been divinely guided for, for so long. It just, it, it's really quite amazing to be able to look into your story and have this interview from the outside in and just be able to see all the pieces come together. One of the questions that I had was, how long did it take you to write this book? I mean, have you been wanting to write this book for a while and, and how did it come about now? Or is it, again, just that universal divine timing that said, now's the time, Lori? Well, honestly, it took me almost 42 years to write the book. Um, this year will be the 43rd anniversary. And right after the interview, um, and I mentioned this in the book as well, uh, when John signed Grapefruit for me, I said, oh, thank you so much to both him and Yoko. And he said, oh, well, of course I would. You know, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. When somebody gives me a book, I want them to sign it for me. And I said, well, John, when I write my book, that's what I'll do. And he went, oh, great. And so immediately I thought, I'm writing a book tomorrow. That's right. it. <laughs> you know, as soon as I write the the, the special with, with this interview, I, I'm going to write the book. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the horrible tragedy and the guilt and the feeling that I wasn't ready to, to just put all this out there. I, I couldn't write the book for years. And plus, I was so busy working. And I realized that the book was going to also be dealing with my dysfunctional family. And while my mother was still with us, I didn't want to put the book out because I didn't want her to feel insulted. Or even if she didn't read it, which she probably wouldn't have. If somebody we knew read it or told her about it, I would have felt terrible having made her feel bad. So I waited and I waited and then the pandemic hit and suddenly my production work came to a close, you know, immediately almost. And um, so I started right away writing my memoir and, uh, you know, it took me because then work started up again. So I had to stop writing and start working. Um, it took me, um, uh, at least a couple of years and then, uh, you know, to get it 
uh, find the the publisher and uh and I did I found a traditional independent publisher um Fayetteville Mafia Press and um right now we're actually getting it ready for its release which will be this December it will be released on the anniversary right. of the event and um it's uh it's it's just you know it's it's hard for me to even consider going forward even though i've been doing a lot of interviews and and the book reading and everything i still am nervous because i really hope that people read it and give glowing reviews um that would be very important to me you kind of hit it right on the head you know how it's like life needs to sometimes stop right for us to be able to be able to sit down and then write a book, you know, like kind of like you were describing, I wrote a book myself and it was, I owned a business and I had, and we lost the business. It went out of, you know, went out of business. And that was the day I started writing my book because life had to stop for me, you know, to give me a moment to be able to sit down and start writing something that I'd wanted to do for years. And it sounds like you're kind of in that same, same category, COVID hit, life stopped. And now all of a sudden, I have time to sit and write. But also, even when I was working as a full-time news editor and then newscaster and additionally doing rock and roll radio specials, I would basically write all night as well. So, you know, 24-hour day on the jobs, basically. And so I was ready to do that if necessary, eventually, to get my book written. But, you know, as I've heard... A number of times everything happens for a reason yeah. and so when this happened that's how i made it work for me you know that's and true. as much as i hated not being able to go out to uh, see friends or even worse to go to concerts because there were no there were no concert tickets uh, anymore you know everything was postponed um i just figured well i have to use the time to do what I've been waiting to do. And so I did. That's when I started writing and came very close to finishing the book. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and it's, it's very interesting to me when uh, for authors of memoirs, in fact, was there anything particular that you found? Well, I mean, you being a professional writer, that's, you know, probably know the answer to this, but you know, is there anything in writing the memoir that you found particularly most difficult, whether it be putting, deciding which stories or what, you know, what content to put together, or did it just really kind of flow for you? Well, a little bit of both, I would say. But yes, it's definitely difficult to decide what friends do you mention, for example, mm-hmm. being in high school with, what guys do you mention having relationships with? What um, job uh, co-workers and associates do you mention? I mean, I, it, it's very difficult. And and at what point do you not want to insult somebody anymore? You know, how how much do you want to say about how you were treated growing up? That kind of thing. So it's it's all very difficult. And and to, also to make it even harder for me is. Yes, professional writer is what what I am, but primarily audio and video. So even though I've done a lot of print articles and, you know, interviews and things for for things like Rock Magazine back in the 80s, um, it's a lot different than writing for 
radio and video, because when you write for audio, especially newscasting, you're writing because that's how you talk. And I talk in long, involved sentences and keep talking. But in print, you can't necessarily do that all the time. So that's something that makes my my print writing voice unique in my book is that I hope it sounds like me talking as, as though I were talking to a friend. So, or many friends. So that's hopefully what it, what it will be like for people to read. I can't wait. I really can't wait. I'm eager. I'm very eager. And thank you for that. I mean, is there any advice that you would have to someone who was thinking about writing a memoir with, is there any particular thing that you would share with them about the process? Well, one thing I will share that's not particularly encouraging is that I wasn't the only one who used the pandemic time to write a book or write a memoir. And it was very difficult for that reason to get an agent and a publisher because their first thing that they said right off the bat was, oh, well, we're only doing celebrity memoirs and I'm not a celebrity you know, and celebrity rock musicians and actors and everybody like that, they were writing memoirs and putting them out and, you know, having a much easier time getting published than than I did. And so it was suggested, oh, well, you could look to self-publish. And I said, no, I know nothing about publishing. So the last thing I want to do is do it myself. It's been hard enough writing my book. So it works for a lot of people. It it worked for um, my friend Madeline Baccaro, who just did an amazing book about Yoko Ono um, uh, last year, and uh, it's been released and is getting great reviews. And and you know that was very encouraging, but it just wouldn't have worked for me. I'm not a self publishing person, so thank God I was able to find the publisher that I did. Did you write, did you have the book written before you started shopping agent and publisher or did you, did you have the idea and that's when you shopped for the agent and publisher? Um, I had started writing it. I was um, not quite halfway through. And although a lot of them said, no, your book should be finished. Most of them just wanted to see the first chapter or, Hmm. you know, whatever. You know what I, I want to ask you on, and this is just a good educational thing for people um, in terms of dealing with grief and loss. You know, I don't know if you ever studied the the stages that um, Dr. Kubler Ross had come up with with DABDA. And I was just thinking about this, um, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. At the moment that you heard this had happened, you know, I could almost see you thinking like, no way, there's no way that this could possibly have, have you know, happened. I was just with him, just saw him. Can can you, is that something you would relate to? Well, I should clarify that what I first heard was a radio um, bulletin saying John Lennon had been shot and was in the hospital. Oh, it wow. wasn't hours later that, that they finally came out and said, yes, he's been killed. And when I did hear that, that bulletin, um, I was still in New York with a friend of mine. So I ran out to the middle of the street and grabbed a cab and took it to Roosevelt Hospital, where the bulletin had said that that John was. And I got out of the cab and ran up to the hospital, the big glass door. And the first thing I saw looking through it was Yoko in the lobby. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to run in and I'm going to 
talk to Yoko and 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 give her a hug and and tell her you know how sorry I am that uh, that John's been shot uh and then I realized that she was crying hysterically and holding on to um a friend I thought uh, and it turned out to be David Geffen afterwards um I found out and I realized no she's not crying about John being shot. She's crying about John being killed. And I just knew in the back of my mind that that's what had happened and that it would be inappropriate for me to go and interrupt her at that point. So I ran right back down the stairs and out to the um, phone booth um, that was right in front of the hospital and called the um, RKO Network New York office where my former uh, KFRC San Francisco news director was now the head and I told her what had happened and that I was sure that John Lennon was actually dead by wow. then. And um, she had me come in to the office immediately and um, basically spend the night doing interviews with stations and print newspapers, et cetera, all over the country and also plenty in Europe. And and um, and then the next morning she put me on the Today Show and, uh, you know, they had called up to find out if if I could be on it and she made sure that I was able to go. And so then I did that, which was absolutely horrible because not only had I been awake for, you know, well over 24 hours, but I was just feeling so awful and I could barely think of what I needed to say. And then I got on a, my flight back to, um, to California. Yeah. Gosh. And, and I can't imagine to have that basically on national TV as well. Like you're in that process and, and, and having to be engaged with even more of this. It's not like you actually got to have that moment off, you know, by yourself or, or, you know, surrounded by your friends. It was like you had to go into work mode that had to hold its own, you know. Yeah. And the tragic part too, was that the guys that I had been in the interview with Dave and Ron and Bert had all taken their flight back to the West coast. So when I found out, what had happened, they hadn't, they wouldn't find out for, for quite a while, for hours till they got off the, the plane and, and either listened to the radio or heard somebody say that to them. And, and um, so I had nobody to hmm. hold their hand or share this with. Uh, it was just, it was awful. Wow. I see I'm getting upset just thinking about it again now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for having the bravery, though, to to share about it. I think that it's going to be for people like myself who just had such felt like they just had such a, a spiritual connection to to John Lennon and his life and his music and and, and his his thought processes. And, and as much as I could know, I mean, this is it's almost it's a it's almost a gift. I mean, I don't think it's almost, I think it is a gift because it lends you that, that next level of getting to learn something even more about one of my musical heroes and, and life heroes. Mm-hmm. So thank you for, for putting yourself through that to be able to give us that gift. Well, you're welcome for having me. Is there anything that you want to uh, discuss real quick that we haven't brought up? Just once again, I hope that people will go to the website, confessionsofarockandrollnamedropper.com, and uh, you can check out everything from my book uh, to the podcasts and interviews I've done to 
photos that I've taken uh, with with various people I've interviewed, including Paul McCartney and, you know, and of course, John and Yoko. And it's just, I just want people to be able to check out the book. And if they want to pre-order it before the December release day, feel free to do that too. There's the ability to do that on the website. Absolutely. Can I, can I ask one last question, I guess? Um, how, how did, how did you come upon or how did you settle on the name of the book? Well, to be very honest, titles have always been one of my biggest talents. For example, I mentioned that I named the Beatles special that was originally RKO presents the Beatles boring to Beatles from Liverpool to legend, you know, that, that meant a lot to me. And the final John Lennon special that I wrote um, using um, a lot of the interview that we'd done, that last interview, uh, I called John Lennon, the man, the memory. So it was always my pleasure to be able to come up with titles, Um, having written the show or the book or whatever. It just made it, for some reason, easy for me to do. Outstanding. Outstanding. I just wish you all the best of luck, Lori, and I hope that everyone who hears this podcast and the sound of our voices will go out and pre-order the book, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper by Miss Lori Kay. And if you don't pre-order, then be waiting in line on in December to get the book for yourself. And I look forward to having you back, Lori. And thanks again for just having the courage to to live your life so authentically and beautifully and come here and share it with us and now sharing this story with the world. Thank you. Much appreciated. And of course they can buy the book on Amazon as well when, it, when it's released. Awesome. Thanks, awesome. Lori. Thank Thanks you, Lori. So much. Okay. Have a good uh, week, guys. All right. You too. You too. Bye. 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 When I was in middle school, um, that is when I really, really like, I, I was always a John Lennon fan. When I was in middle school, I started learning more about the man. And I was going through this tremendous, well, you know, I, I was, I knew I was trans at four. So I was going through this tremendous <laughs> ball Damn, shit. Four? At four, bro. Really? I know. I know. Jesus. It's unbelievable, right? Man, you so, would, so you would have been like that that four year old kid that that uh, yes, your freaking mom should be cutting your breasts off and everything, everything. <laughs> Run me down there and put me on the hormone blockers, please. You would have Great. saved me so much crap. <laughs> But I started learning. It was in that time, man, that I started learning more about the man, John Lennon. And I would find things out like that. And it was like I was just so obsessed. Like I was almost like I was obsessed with the music. And some of the weird stuff would come out and I'd just be like, oh, that's really, really weird. So we're not, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear that. But I had this friend who named her first daughter Lennon. She named her um, her dog Winston. Her husband's name was John. So it was wow. her fault that I was so like obsessed with. Wow. This. <laughs> yeah. Like like so, this. Shout out. The, the name. Shout out. This. It's all about yeah. the name, right? Yeah. It's all about the name. <laughs> Man, I like her though. I really like her. She was good. I I know I do too. I I thought she was great. Um, because she was she was there during the time when we don't mention his name when John Lennon signed the album for him. 
Mm-hmm. She she was there at that time. Wow. When, wow. When that happened. So, and that's always a very famous moment. You always say, you know, yeah. you hear about that, you know, yeah. he signed the, you know, she was there, you know? Wow. And that, and I did read that somewhere. And that's why I kind of asked for that too, is I read somewhere that she did. She felt very guilty because she kept seeing him there. You know, mm. and she never said anything. She just, yeah. felt, you know, but you know, really again, goes back, you know? she even said, she goes, it doesn't make sense when I mean, it really doesn't. Yeah. I mean, right. for her to feel right. guilty because it's not her fault. Right. I mean, it's exactly. Nick right. had douchebags fault that shot him. Right. That was obsessed <laughs> with this. Solely his fault. You know? Yeah. Completely, <laughs> completely. And how would you know? Like, you know, with uh, he, uh, he constantly had people surrounding that apartment trying to get a glimpse at him. So how would you know this weirdo, from the other weirdos that would camp out in front of, you know, a yeah. celebrity's apartment. Yeah. It's kind of hard to tell, but you know, what do we know about guilt? Guilt has no, you know, guilt has no reasoning. Yeah. It really doesn't make sense, but yeah. you know, th- that's, she was a great professional guest. I, it, it's really easy to see how divinely her, her story plays out, but it almost seems like she doesn't quite, she doesn't see it, which I wonder you know, it, if that's look, the way it is. Everything about what she was saying, though, was like, you know, about like writing the book, starting the book, COVID hit. I mean, dude, it's like, that, that's what I was, I was trying to yeah. get, I was trying to get that message was like so much, so many of uh, all of us. Uh, yeah. There, we get so busy in life, right? We're running around with our heads cut off, you yeah. know? And then all of a sudden we need like the world to stop. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you go, fuck, now I can do that. Dude, that's yep. exactly that's what I was saying. It was like that's exactly what happened with my my book. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was yeah. running a program, owned a program, and we closed. Boom! I'm out of a fucking job. Right? The world stopped. Now I got a moment that I can sit down and start doing this, and I did. Damn. You know. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I, I I'm a fan of people too. You know. <laughs> I like people to sign their books when they give them to me and all that. That's oh, yeah. when I come out with my daughter. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Imagine all the people. Great. Living.